Thank you, Laurie. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, where we are. God bless us still steaming along in our now legendary, in length at least, series on the book of Acts. Can I get an amen? That's pretty good. You have to work a little harder this morning because our numbers are few, but the few that we have here are the stout Colorado stock. Yes? Now, is that amen only because the series is long or because it's been such a huge blessing in your life and witness to Jesus Christ? See, I know how you are. Both, I hope. Yes? I wonder what the record is for single series sermon length. You say, I don't know, Pastor, but holy Moses, we must be getting close. You know, this extended sermon series is one of the ways I'm helping you to prepare for Palm Sunday and Easter. Did you know that? The extended series is helping you to prepare for Easter because you will be ready, so ready, to hear any part of the Bible other than Acts that this will deepen your Easter experience. Amen? We've even announced that we're planning a cantata for Palm Sunday. And even though you're not even completely sure what a cantata is, it doesn't matter. You're excited about it as long as cantata is not spelled A-C-T-S. Woo, bring on that cantata thingamahooey. And then on Easter, when we turn to the Gospel of John, when we turn to one of my all-time favorite passages in all of Scripture, this passage is so amazing. I have to be careful. I'll launch into the sermon right now. Don't miss it. You'll regret it. Together with the praise and worship that Craig and Steve had planned. It's only two weeks away, Palm Sunday. Can you believe it? Please, would you start asking this week your friends, family, and countrymen to come join us? When we turn to John's Gospel on Easter, simply because it's not Acts, your spirits will soar with delight, I'm sure. And all this, because we're spending so long in Acts. Think of it. And P.S., if you think Acts has been long, just wait till we tackle the 50 chapters in Genesis. <laughs> and there were no amens. In all seriousness, you are to be commended for maintaining your interest and enthusiasm in this so often overlooked book of Acts. Our culture in particular often tries to condition us to want something new and different simply because it's new and different. But I don't sense that from you at all. So good job and thank you for that. So here we go. Let's pick up Luke's story again, shall we? You recall that we last left Paul in Athens. He's there waiting for Timothy and Silas to catch up to him. And while he takes a walk in the morning, he starts out taking a walk, and before you know it, Paul ends up addressing the Areopagus, that brightest and best council of all of these Greeks, the, the brightest and best that Greek intellectualism, Greek philosophy, wisdom, and religion has to offer. Now, two weeks ago, you remember Pastor George introduced Paul in Athens by pointing out the gap that separates people from God. George reminded us that no matter who we are or where we came from, no matter what the talent, money, influence we possess, and especially in regard to those Athenians, no matter how religious we are, or curious, or intelligent, or educated we are, or at least think we are, sometimes there's a gap between those two things, 
Absent a personal relationship with Jesus, all of us, everyone, falls hopelessly short of being reunited with God. And as George put it, people need to mind the gap. We need to realize that unless we are in Christ, that gap in the end keeps us from a fully restored, intimate, forever relationship with God. In our passage this morning in Acts 17, Luke gives us a rather unique story. As George pointed out, Athens was a university town. I love that picture for Athens. In fact, Athens was the university town. Athens represents the epitome, the utmost of what human intellect, intelligence, philosophy, science, reason, and the religion of ancient Greece has to offer. And so when Paul goes to Athens, we get a rather unique window into how the gospel interacts with the best and the brightest that the human mind has to offer. This group that Paul addresses as a whole is entirely unaware of that gap between people and God. They don't even know who the true God is. They don't know Scripture, and they're ignorant of their need for a Messiah. And Paul addressing that type of group is quite, if not totally unique, at least in terms of detail that we have. We don't have many, if any, details that I can recall of encounters between Paul and this sort of highfalutin, highly educated, completely pagan or non-believing audience. And perhaps that's why a leading commentator on Acts, Joseph Fitzmaier, perhaps that's why Fitzmaier calls this passage before us this morning the most important episode in all of Paul's second missionary journey. Because we have an opportunity to learn from Paul here. And so as we read again Paul's speech, begin asking yourself this question, will you? How is it that Paul approaches these intellectual non-believers in Athens? Let's turn to his speech. I'm in Acts chapter 17, and um, beginning at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Are is from the Greek god Ares. Apagus or Pagus is of the hill, so it's really hill of Ares. Mars is the Greek name or the Roman name, the Latin name for the Greek god Ares. So it's Hill of Ares or Hill of Mars. Many of you I know have heard of Mars Hill. That is Areopagus. He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. 
And God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, His children, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, and others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the very Word of God. Amen? Amen. So how does Paul uh, approach the Areopagus members, this group of intellectual non-believers? Take a look at the outline that I've got of Paul's speech up on the screen. Paul has kind of a three-point outline. He'd be a very good preacher today. Three-point outlines we like. There's an introduction, and uh, for lack of a better word, I've got Paul talking about them. He says something about them. Second part is God talks about God and them and how they and the world relate to God. God is the Creator. God is very close in proximity. In fact, He's so close that He calls us His offspring, His children. And finally, Paul moves to briefly, although he doesn't mention Him by name, Jesus and them. So how is it that Paul approaches the intellectual non-believer. Let's dive into each of these a little deeper. First, Paul talks about them. And if you notice, he is complimentary. Did you notice that? He's respectful. Paul takes the time to learn what makes them tick, what they're interested in. We read that Paul looked carefully at their idols, temples, altars, other objects they used in worship. And then he finds something nice to say about them. Now, that right there might be worth a complete sermon all by itself. I was tempted. How often do we approach a non-believer with compliments and respect? A good friend of mine, Bill Odemolin, he's pastor at Foothills Bible Church just down the road where we were members before coming here. I'll never forget when Bill pleaded with us during one of his messages. He said, stop yelling at people who are in the dark. Of course they're stumbling around in the dark. It's dark in the dark. So don't yell at them for being in the dark. Instead, he said, be a light to them so they can find their way. I'll never forget that. That It's one of those things, right, that you come across and say, oh, that's so good. I wish I had said it, you know. And we can really see 
how purposeful Paul is here in treating his completely pagan audience with respect. All we need to do is, is compare how Paul talks about the intellectual non-believer when he's kind of having an inside conversation to Christians only, as in the letter to the First Corinthians. In First Corinthians 1, Paul quotes Isaiah, where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And then Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's quite critical there in 1 Corinthians about the wisdom of this world. Because somehow it has concluded that believing in Jesus is foolish. In other words, the wisdom of the world is really not all that wise at all. But here in Athens, there's really not even a hint of criticism in Paul, is there? He doesn't stand there and call their idol worship and their Epicurean or Stoic philosophy foolish. He doesn't say, <clears throat> well, to begin with, you're all idiots. No, instead he finds something to compliment. I see you're very religious. You're very pious. You're serious about spiritual things. You're spiritually minded. Good for you. And you know, I've, I've taken the time myself to carefully look at, at, at how you worship. And when Paul mentions that altar that he finds to an unknown God... He doesn't scoff or, or burst out laughing at such a silly thing, even though it, it's kind of silly. No, instead, Paul uses that altar as a stepping stone to tell them about the God who they don't know. He uses their idea, a respectful gesture, don't you think? He uses their idea and builds on it. And Paul clearly knows a, a thing or three about Epicureans and Stoics, who are the main movers and shakers in Paul's audience. They were interested in things like creation, the nature of God, how to be happy, the highest virtue to strive for in life. They were interested in, in how all of life fits together. That's all they talked about. And so that's what Paul talks about. He finds something good to say about them. And then he talks about things that they like to talk about. Second, Paul moves to establishing the foundation about God and God's relationship to them. God's the creator and preserver of everything. God is very close to them, to all of us. In fact, He's so close, He's family. We're His offspring and His children. Did you notice what Paul does in the family portion of the, speak, uh, of the speech? This, this is astounding to me, and I found myself even reading over it. Maybe you have too, like it's no big thing. But it's really quite amazing when you pause and think about it. Paul quotes approvingly, he approvingly quotes at least one of their poets. Did you notice that? He uses something... One of these complete pagans said to support what Paul's saying. Can you imagine 
I'll give you an example. It's going to be out there. It's out there for me a bit. Can you imagine quoting from the Quran? The Scriptures are holy writings of a Muslim. Can you imagine quoting from the Quran to support a message about God you're trying to communicate to a Muslim? Can you imagine that? Probably not our first choice as a reliable source. But doesn't Paul do something similar here? He quotes the Greek author Aratus, who first said about a God at least, we are his offspring. And some scholars conclude that the line, for in him we live and move and have our being, is from another Greek author, Epimenides, although that one is disputed. Third, and Paul doesn't get very far with this one. As soon as it's out of his mouth almost, they politely ask him to leave. Did you notice? Paul next turns to the crucial role of Jesus in God's relationship to them. And he talks about coming judgment. He brings them to that gap between people and God. And he tells them that ultimately the risen Jesus is the only way to cross that gap. And that's probably why some sneered and others asked him to come back later. It's a hard sell to intellectual pagans, it seems. Even today, have you noticed? It's a hard sell to the intellectual that, that, that they're actually going to be held accountable to someone. And that Jesus is the only way. So how does Paul reach out to these non-believing intellectuals? He respects them. He's even complimentary. He talks about God's relationship to the world and to them. And then he talks about God's relationship to them by and through Jesus. And he does it using ideas and terms that, that they can not only understand, but they are interested in. Creation, God, how it all fits together. As one commentator I looked at this week notes, Paul tries to meet them halfway. And if you're looking for one, it's a great model to use in evangelism. Talk about them who you're trying to reach. Say something nice about them. Uplift the image of God that they are indeed made in, even if they don't know it. And then talk about God, how He creates and sustains everything about how close to us He is in proximity, and about how this amazing God in love even calls us His children. And then finally talk about Jesus' resurrection. And maybe try to do it in creative ways they can understand and find interesting. There are two words, at least, that I believe describe Paul's approach in Athens. Both really get at the same thing, so you can pick your favorite one if you like. I couldn't decide which one I like, so um, I'm going with both of them. <laughs> the words are relevant and contextual. It seems to me that Paul stretches as far as he can without compromising the gospel. More on that in a minute. He stretches as far as he can without compromising the good news, God's truth. He bends over backwards as much as he can to make the gospel as relevant, as meaningful to them where they are as he possibly can. He carefully contextualizes God's message. He adapts it. He doesn't change or compromise it, but he adapts it into their context as much as he can without changing or compromising truth. 
And he does this with the hope that by putting the gospel into their language and culture and their way of thinking, this will maximize their chances for accepting the gospel as the, as the only gap-crossing truth. Now, what might this have to do with us? What does Athens have to do with us? Well, let's see. In Athens, we have a culture that values, in fact, it literally worships things like reason, knowledge, scientific method, higher education, and intellect. Hmm. In Athens, we have a culture fascinated, it's too weak a word, mesmerized, that's better, or how about a Addicted to, pick any one. In Athens, we have a culture fascinated by, mesmerized by, addicted to anything and everything new. Just because it's new. Oh, it's new. Got to have that. Trying new things out for size. A culture that pours countless dollars and times into expressing new opinions and ideas. The newer, the better. In Athens, we have that. Hmm. How about this one? In Athens, we have a culture that is extremely religious. They're into spiritual things. Especially spiritual things that focus on me and self. The greatest good of Epicureanism was to be happy. And included in Paul's day, at least, very sensual, erotic practices. The greatest good of Stoicism was living in harmony with nature. And the greatest virtue was knowledge. In Athens, we have that. Hmm. Are you sure it's Athens? Or is it America? Newsweek, among other polling groups, annually loves to ask Americans this question, whether they believe in God. That's the simple question. Do you believe in God? And over the last ten years, this question has been asked, Guess what percentage of people answered yes to that question? That simple question, do you believe in God? Over 90%. Might the Apostle Paul observe today by visiting any one of our cities that, that we, like Athens, are, are, are very religious into spiritual things? What idols might Paul observe as he walks around Denver? or as he walks around your house and mine. What objects of worship? Might we learn something from Paul's approach with the Areopagus that day? How about, do we learn something like this? Like Paul, we too should find ways to communicate God's message in relevant, contextual ways. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who once said, Unless the gospel is preached with contemporary relevance, it has not been preached. Good old Luther, you never have to wonder what he really thinks. Now, huge P.S. this morning. I hesitate to call it a P.S. because it's not a tack on to the message. As important as relevance and contextualization are, it is lethally 
fatally dangerous when it goes too far. In a word, that danger is called syncretism. Say syncretism. I'm sorry, sometimes I lapse into my high school class. (laughs) Do you mind saying words back to me? Yeah, you really do, but you're being polite. Syncretism is when different belief systems, different religions in this context, are fused together. Like going through a cafeteria. Oh, jello. Oh, potatoes. And you whip it all together, and it creates something quite different, a brand new belief system. That's syncretism. Recently, I read that Oprah and Friends are teaching a course on someone they are calling the New Age Christ. Have you heard? Apparently, beginning already this past January 1, this year-long course is being offered on Oprah's daily radio program. The course proudly admits that it's a course in mind training and that it's a course dedicated to thought reversal. Here are some direct quotes. At least this is my understanding. I haven't heard it yet. Here are some direct quotes from lessons being taught by Oprah and friends. There is no sin. There is no devil. A slain Christ has no meaning. The journey to the cross should be the last useless journey. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. The name of Jesus Christ as such is but a symbol. It is a symbol safely used as a replacement for the many names of all the gods to which you pray. The recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. The atonement is the final lesson man need learn, for it teaches man that never having sinned, sinned, he has no need of salvation. Close quote. Um, excuse me, Oprah and friends? Say what? My friends, people of God, these are lies. And this is a blatant example of the desire for relevance and contextualization gone terribly, horribly wrong. In our efforts to make the gospel of Jesus Christ relevant and contextual, we cannot let go of truth. And I'm not sure if Oprah ever had a grasp on truth to begin with. I don't know. But if she ever did, she's clearly thrown it all away. If she is indeed teaching such syncretic nonsense. One reason my passion runs a bit deep here is because there is someone I love very much. Someone who is family. The most beautiful, gentle, sweet woman who wouldn't hurt a flea that you can possibly imagine. And who's now 
apparently fallen for these lies and has turned toward a new age Christ that is really no Christ at all. I'm really angry about it, to be frank. Please, in any effort to be relevant and contextual, don't let go of truth. Such is the work of the devil and not of God. And even if you mean well, even if your motive is to love on someone, you will, in the end, the devil will twist it. You will, in the end, become an instrument of his, the devil, who leads people away from God. Now, the Bible gives us safeguards against the danger of such syncretism. I've had time for one this morning, the big one. I've already mentioned it. One primary safeguard the Bible tells us about is itself. Scripture is a vital safeguard. Maybe that's why God tells us to write it on our hearts. So it becomes who we are. It's a vital safeguard. Whenever we stretch to be relevant, don't stretch so far that you let go of Scripture. This is how the devil tempts us. He uses our love and our empathy for the hurting, lost, and people against us. Because he knows. Ah, those Christians, they see someone hurting and lost who we know, who they know just need God, and they want to help them find God, but despite everything they try, those, that person's just not getting it. I know. And I see those Christians, they're really clever, they try to make the text relevant and contextual to better reach them, but then maybe those people still aren't getting it. They get hung up on the idea of sin. They have difficulty with the ideas of judgment and accountability and hell. They can't accept Jesus as fully God. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way across the gap. And the devil tempts us to feel justified in knocking some of those sharp corners off of truth to make it easier to accept. The problem is that those corners, the edges of truth, are sharp for a reason. They define who God is. And what He and all of life is all about. Truth is not optional. It's not relative. We don't get to define it. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of truth we like. Only God defines truth because He's God. Amen? And suddenly, or even not so suddenly, this sort of smoother, watered-down gospel that people accept is not the gospel at all. It's been syncretized, fused into something very different. And instead of helping people to find God, we instead get them even more lost than they ever were before. So by all means, go ahead and stretch to be relevant. Stretch to be contextual. But for God's sake, literally for God's sake and for theirs, don't let go of Scripture. In the relatively short time that, that Jill and I and the kids have been here with you, one of the things we have observed about you, our new family, who we already love very deeply. You had us at hello. One thing we've noticed is that you are exceptionally gifted. And it seems to us especially called to be relevant and contextual in communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's a good match for us in our call to ministry, too. We feel called and hopefully also are gifted in some ways to do the same. I mean, our facilities. Look at this stage. It begs us to be creative in communicating the gospel. This is what pagan culture likes. Gee, if they like it, how about we use it to communicate the gospel? This does not take a rocket scientist. Our technical expertise in sound and lights and video and production and all of it, it quite uniquely equips us to reach a culture that's fascinated by that sort of entertainment medium, if you will. Our youth group enjoys, it enjoys the greatest respect and reputation I have ever seen among kids, especially among kids that either don't know the Lord or haven't yet taken Him very seriously. In large part because our youth staff, staff is very, very gifted at making God's Word relevant and contextual to kids and teens. And there's also a very pure and sincere heart at WBC to just step in and to help people who are hurting. You are extraordinary in that way, in our opinion. And my plea, my constant prayer, my challenge to you as your pastor or as simply as a brother, please, as we continue to try and find ever newer and more creative and innovative ways to, to preach the gospel with contemporary relevance, as Martin Luther for one says we must, let's do it. But please, we must continue to do so with great care. Great care and attention to the danger of syncretism. Keep a, keep a watchful eye on that syncretism thing with me, will you, please? As soon as you turn your head from it, it bites you. We need to continue to exercise great care that in trying to be relevant and contextual, we don't let go of the text. So help us, God. Last Sunday morning, when this morning's um, sermon was still only an idea rumbling around in my head, I, I, I came to church and heard Craig's message. And through Craig's message, the idea in my head reached down and uh, for this morning's sermon, the idea in my head reached down and touched my heart. And what really brought it home to me was Ryan Wellborn's video. How many of you have seen it, either last week or maybe sometime? It's one about the groom, the dad, and the friends. Well, last week was the first time I had ever seen that, and it got done, and I, if you were sitting near me, you saw I began writing furiously as soon as it was done. <laughs> to close this morning, I'd like to show that video again. Because in my opinion, it comes as close as I could get to one perfect illustration of what I've been trying to say this morning. That like Paul, we need to preach the gospel in relevant and contextual ways that never compromise Scripture. And Ryan's work here does that, in my opinion. He uses video, clever glimpses, ins and outs, the kind of editing... All of that, probably at least among the most powerful medium of our culture today. And he uses that to communicate the great biblical truths that God's love for us is the love of a friend, the love of a father, and even the love of a groom for his bride. Let's watch.
reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Be relevant. Use contextual methods. And always affirm. Always defend. Never compromise. And never contradict the Word of God. So help us, God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your message this morning. Help us, would you please? to reach a world that is desperate for you in in ways that they can hear, see, understand, and feel and know the intense love that you have for them in Jesus, the resurrected Messiah's name. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Please, run to your classes. Run and get your kids. Thank the youth care workers and your teachers for their patience this morning. God bless you as you go and drive safely out there, will you? We'll see you next week. Bless you.